Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. Together with Smart Cities World, we've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I would like to thank our sponsor, the World Bank, and you for joining us on the Urban Exchange Podcast, the premier urban resilience podcast, taking us around the world to meet people working on the front line. I will now hand you over to our host for this episode. Thank you, Laurent, for this kind introduction. I'm very pleased to be back hosting the Urban Exchange Podcast to discuss this very important topic. Uh, I've actually worked with Fernando for many years, and so I'm really pleased to have him with us to share his insights on this on this topic. We're also very fortunate to be joined by Vivian Argueta, who led the development of Cali's resilience strategy, focusing on infrastructure and social resilience in education. Fernando and Vivian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Francis. Very glad to be part of this conversation. Hi, Francis. Thank you very much. Vivian, you, you were the resilience officer of the city of Cali for several years, where you initiated Mi Comunidad Es Escuela. My community is a school in 2017, I believe. Is this how you met Fernando? Yes, Francis, that's where I met Fernando. I was lost chief resilience officer at that time. I was wondering what we were going to do about the schools in, in, in the city. And thankfully, what was the 100 Resilient Cities program, which is now the Resilient Cities Network, introduced me to a group of experts. That's where I met Fernando. And I think it was love at first sight, but I don't know what Fernando thinks about that. I mean, at the time, it was the best option for, for the Cali City. Vivian. <laughs> Vivian, you just mentioned school infrastructure. Could you elaborate a little bit? Do you literally mean classrooms and building? Well, it's uh, so much more than that. You know, uh, school infrastructure involves also ceilings, toilets, everything that makes up a classroom and that makes up the buildings in, in a school site. You might have several different buildings. Uh, and, and these are all relevant when we're speaking about school infrastructure, because if you have brand new school building next to a very old and dilapidated school building, this affects learning outcomes and this affects how children live the experience of learning and being at school. So it refers to so much more than just the classrooms. Fernando, this is a podcast about urban issue. Why is this important for, for cities? Actually, this concept of safer schools is particularly relevant in urban settings, not only because of the exposure of thousands, even millions of children to the impact of school infrastructure failures, but also because of the growing role of city governments and municipalities on school infrastructure management. I must say that one of the you know, most impactful visits I did in my career as a World Bank official uh, was to go and visit the city of Wenchuan after the 2010 earthquake, which was destroyed, literally destroyed, and, and where more than 5,000 uh, kids lost their, their lives. Something absolutely devastating for those families, particularly at a time where the one child family was uh, at its peak 
in China. And I think that uh, recently we, we were reminded again of the importance of, of school infrastructure with the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Fernando, are there estimates on the proportion, the number of schools, uh, particularly city schools, that are vulnerable to natural hazards? Yes, sure. We, we have some global estimates about disaster risk in schools. In average annual basis, 2,500 children die due to the poor performance of school buildings over earthquake events. Three billion US dollars are the annual economic losses due to the damage of the school infrastructure. It's equivalent to lose 3,000 classrooms every year. And we estimate that as a consequence of this situation, around 800,000 children have to attend schools in temporary classrooms. And from the side of climate-related hazard, numbers are also shocking. 400 million children live in areas highly exposed to cyclones. 330 million children live in areas highly exposed to river floods. And the same with 240 million children in coastal flooding-prone areas. So the numbers are big. Are there number coming out of the damage assessment in, in Turkey? I know that uh, the World Bank is currently involved in trying to make sense of, of what happened in that area. Yeah, it's too, it's too early actually to know the final numbers of the affected schools. In fact, the damage assessment is underway. However, I can tell you that the schools constructed or retrofitted in compliance with the seismic building code in the earthquake area were either undamaged or with very, very light damage. Among those buildings are those built by the World Bank project for the refugee children in, in the border between Turkey and, and Syria. These schools also became shelter of affected people. As you can see, this, this evidence stresses how unacceptable the loss of children's lives because of the collapse of the school buildings is. It's totally unacceptable. So you're saying that school, actually that was a project implemented by the government of Turkey with supervision from the World Bank, but funded in great part by the by the European Union, that the school that that were built using proper standards, that none of these schools collapsed, which is a, an amazing demonstration that you can actually build school that resists even the strongest earthquake. I mean, you've worked on this now for, for several years. If quality infrastructure makes such a difference, do you have any explanation why schools are so unprepared for the risk from earthquake or cyclone or, or floods around the world? Indeed, I, I have dedicated many years of my professional career to answer that question and also how to prevent it. You might think that the problem is the quality of, of the school buildings. And you're right. However, that is the symptom. It's not the causes of the problem. The roots of the problem are much more complex. They go all the way from the global and the local context. Let me tell you, from my experience, uh, I see five main causes. The first one, number one, is the school infrastructure has little attention within education policies. Francis, if you were the Minister of Education with very tight budget, 
where would you allocate resources among competing priorities? Teacher salaries, books, uh, food for, for children, institutional needs, or school infrastructure. And let, let me move to, to other, other causes. Number two, engineering community has done little to propose uh, solutions at scale. It means solutions that are affordable, that are affordable for developing countries and can be implemented to intervene a large, large stock of vulnerable school buildings. We estimate, for example, that at least one million school buildings are vulnerable worldwide. Number three, construction practices for schools remains stuck in the past century. I used to say that modernity has not come yet to school infrastructure. And let me be honest in this point. In my work with school infrastructure managers across the world, I see very often a very toxic environment around school construction. No policies, no regulation in place, no interest from key stakeholders, in many cases corruption, no enforcement mechanisms, informal construction, no maintenance. So it's a very complex context in which in many cases school infrastructure is built, maintained and operate. Number four is the problem of low capacity in municipalities and subnational governments. As I mentioned at the beginning, there is a growing role of these entities in, in, in school infrastructure management. So they are not still prepared properly to manage this infrastructure. And finally, I, I, I also have to mention the weak engagement of the school communities around good quality physical learning environment for children. From my view, it's, a, it's ironic, the contradiction in our society between the love we profess to our children and our disdain for the quality space children stay most of the time daily is actually the school. No solution at scale, corruption, low capacity, of subnational entities, weak engagement of communities at time, and obviously the impact on the health and safety of children, of teachers, of administrators is, is disturbing. Uh, Viviana, I'd, I'd like you to, to bring you here and ask you if you could describe the situation you found in Cali, Colombia, when you became the city chief uh, resilience officer. Sure. We had 92 public schools that were distributed with 364 public school sites. This is because one school could have more than one site for that school. And we had about 183,000 children in the public school system. This included uh, children in the early childhood stage, so early childhood centers, students too. And the truth is that over 50% of our portfolio had been built before 1984. You know, we uh, schools were old. They had not been upkept during time. And our threats were not just earthquakes, you know, because Cali is uh, the biggest city of Colombia in the Pacific uh, Ring of Fire. So we, we definitely have seismic risk. But we also were just vulnerable to floods, to landslides, but also to heat and rain. You know, our schools, when it rained, they flooded. When it was too hot, you know, it was just these environments where children couldn't adequately learn, where if you're dying of heat, you know, you can't focus. But also if you're feeling the drizzle from the rain, you, you just 
can't focus either. So we knew we had a massive problem, but we didn't know how to solve this problem. You know, the, the, the task just seemed unsurmountable for us because we didn't know where to start. That was the, the circumstance that I found when I joined the municipality and we started analyzing the situation. Vivian, you, you mentioned before 1984. What happened in 1984? Well, that was when the first seismic code in Colombia uh, came out. So this meant that everything that had been built prior to that did not conform to these building codes. Since then, uh, you know, we would have certain schools that had school buildings that had been built uh, prior to 1984, and maybe they had another building that had been built later on. So we had a, a mix and match of uh, schools that had buildings that were safe or conformed to standards and buildings that did not have, uh, did not conform to standards at all. So you faced this uh, unsurmountable situation and lucky you, you met Fernando. Fernando, let's let's discuss the program you lead, the, the Global Program for Safer School, GPSS. Can you tell us a bit how you're working with cities like Cali? How did you engage and, and how did you proceed? This is a almost 10 years old program. We have, through the World Bank operations, we have engaged over 30 countries around the world. And we work with governments, both national and, and subnational level, to identify the needs of interventions, the needs of capacity building, and also how to prioritize investments in order to make safer schools at scale. In the case in Colombia, we had a, a, an engagement with the Ministry of Education, and through that uh, engagement, we learned to know about the program from Cali, the Comunidades Escuela, my community's school. And through that dialogue, we get uh, connected with the government of the city. But let me tell some outputs of the program. Over this year, we have informed around 1.8 billion World Bank-funded projects, policy reforms and investment, and improving the safety of thousands of school buildings around the world. We support also efforts from local universities to bring innovation to engineering solutions for school infrastructure. We also support strengthening local capacity for school infrastructure management, which is another key line of activities in the GPSS. And in partnership with education specialists, we work to, to get comprehensive solutions for schools, which includes not only the safety, but also health conditions, growing conditions, also inclusive conditions for learning with students with disabilities. This is a very general overview of the Global Program for Safer Schools. And in fact, you're actually funded by the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery, which is hosted by the World Bank. So all these services are put at the disposal of national authorities, but very often uh, city authorities, because interventions are, are at the level of um, cities. Now, going on your website, I noticed you have a lot of knowledge product, a lot of guidance note, a lot of case studies. Can you tell us a little bit about the program of, of knowledge generation that supports that agenda? Yeah, there are two two main pro knowledge products that are interconnected. One is the what we call the Roadmap for Safer and Resilient Schools. This is a step-by-step -step guidance 
for the design of intervention strategies and investment plans to make schools safer at the scale. And this was exactly the tool that, that was applied in Cali. And the second product is the Global Library of School Infrastructure, which offer a live repository of evidence-based knowledge and data about the school infrastructure. I think Vivian is a first-hand user of the, of the roadmap for safety schools, and she can share with us the experience on applying and implementing this process of planning investments to improve the safety and the condition of schools. Well, let's go back to you, Vivian, and uh, ask you, Vivian, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the program that you implemented in, in Cali and maybe elaborate a little bit on how GPS has helped you, but really how, how did this program take shape and how did it then materialize uh, and what, what did you achieve? Yes, so the administration had already started this program that was my community school, right? And our focus was to improve learning outcomes. So in reality, this was not supposed to be an infrastructure program. This was mostly a, a quality of education program. But as we've been mentioning, infrastructure greatly affects learning. So if you don't have adequate classrooms, if you don't have adequate learning spaces, children just can't learn. So we knew we had a problem at our schools, but because it had always seemed so daunting, you know, we, we thought about schools as each individual school separately. That's how we had always thought about it. And how we intervened schools was also schools individually on a case-by-case -case basis. And of course, what you instantly realize is that there is never enough money to solve the problem. Budgets are always tight, as Fernando was mentioning. And education is simply not sexy. You know, for political leaders, investing in education is not sexy. That's why we have this problem all over the world, where we have dilapidated schools or schools that are too old. So when Fernando and I met and the Resilient Cities Network connected us, I instantly saw that Fernando had something that was going to be very, very valuable for us because the roadmap was the two key things that helped us as a government. It made us think of our schools as a portfolio. It necessarily made you to stop thinking on a case-by-case -case basis. And second, it gave us a step-by-step -step mechanism of how to solve or address the problem. And this is really what we needed because we had a good team. We had a group of experts locally that had been working in the municipality for a long time. We had political will. We had a mayor that was interested in the subject of education and he wanted to make changes. And now we could tell them how, you know, we could tell our leaders how we could solve the problem. So what we started to do was with the team of the, the GPSS team accompanied us in implementing the roadmap. And so the first thing that we had to do was a diagnosis. But of course, this diagnosis couldn't be, um, and any public official that is now listening to me says, oh my God, a diagnosis, because we tend to think that these are like one or two year pro long processes, especially the larger your school portfolio is, the longer it can take. And the reality is that you don't have that time when you're a public official. You need to implement quickly 
or otherwise, you're out. And so we were able to do a very quick diagnosis that our own engineers, with the assistance of the GPSS team, and we did a partnership with the university, in fact, with some university professors that also assisted us. But we did quick assessments that allowed us to know exactly in what situation every single building in our school portfolio, because the truth is that for the first time, we started thinking about the school portfolio after we implemented the roadmap. And once we knew the state of the portfolio, once we knew which were the buildings that were in non-mitigable risk areas, which were the buildings that were a more likely, did not conform to seismic building codes, we didn't know that before that, which buildings were more vulnerable because of these different uh, circumstances, which buildings were located it were in the places where there were no longer students, you know. All of this information was available to us. What we could do was prioritize short, medium, and long-term investment. And a very important thing that the roadmap also allowed us to do was that we were able to look at what was the historical spending of the city in school infrastructure and we were able to extrapolate to realistic scenarios uh, that namely allowed us to know how long it would take for us to bridge the gap. So we could see that if we continued spending as we had traditionally done, it would take, let's say, 150 years to bridge the gap that we had to bridge. If we increased uh, 5% spending, that number came down to 75 years. And if we increase spending by 10%, then you could bridge the gap in something like a, I think that the last number that we were able to see was like 20 years. And that allows you to come to your leaders with smart, targeted spending tactics. You know, like when you can tell them that story, then everybody listens to you because you're telling them like, look, I, I need to spend more money in school education, but you're not asking for a 100% increase in budget, which no political leader will ever say yes. You're telling them, I need to spend more, 10% more for the next 10 years. And that way I will be able to close the gap that I have in infrastructure. And immediately your leaders start listening because that makes sense. That is efficiency. That is something that is achievable. So I think the roadmap and th th without the support of GPSS, we would have never been able to do it in the order that we did. And especially all of this that I have mentioned, we accomplished within one year. So we had enough time to start implementing. And that is key. I'm always amazed, Vivian, when people say school education, school infrastructure is not sexy. It seems to me that if I were a mayor, I'd want to start a program of school retrofitting, school building, because a year later, every month I can start opening a school, go to a community, show them that that we are contributing to their well-being. Have you seen an evolution in, in Cali? You said you already had a, a mayor who was convinced, which was a great thing, but have you seen that there were more buying as you were going along? And were you able to maintain the momentum maintained this as the mayor was changing and the administration was changing over the years? Yes, but it was because precisely we had technical data. So I think that before, the mayor was convinced about investing in quality of education. He was sold on that. As soon as we had the plan, as soon as we could show the numbers, especially the historical spending information, and, and we could make the case the way that I was uh, mentioning earlier, 
of course, we got we got the planning director on board. We got the a treasury department on board. All the different people that were yearning for efficient, educated spending. What your treasury department usually doesn't like, or you know, the finance people don't like, is crazy spending or spending that doesn't seem to be efficient. And also the planning department used to uh, have a lot of issues when we would talk about spending in, in schools because they said, okay, but this is based on what? What are your decisions of uh, targeted spending on schools being based on? And the truth is for a long time, they were based on hunches or they were based on, you know, whoever was able to uh, promote a school based on any criteria that was not standardized and that was not technical. And so the minute that you start having technical standardized criteria and that you have numbers and that you can show that your prioritization is based on safety or risks, then that changes the whole story. And if, uh, we actually had the entire cabinet on board and this it was very important. But to go back to the, the reason, as you say, it sounds for all of us that are in the education sector, we think like, how is it possible that education is not sexy? But the answer is very simple because a school benefits an X number of children and an X number of people in a community, whereas a road benefits several communities across a region. And so that's why it's easy to lose the argument when you're talking about school infrastructure. And that's why you have to stop talking about individual schools and start talking about the portfolio and a number of schools. Because as soon as we were able to show, no, we're going to invest in fact, we we ended up investing in over 150 schools, you know, in, in, in over our four-year period. And this changes entirely the narrative in the conversation because then there's tons of communities that are along there with you. And there's thousands of people that are getting benefited. And this makes sense. And we could only do that because we're doing large-scale projects that would allow us to have a efficiency in costs because we weren't doing bidding one by one. Fernando, you know you've done projects all around the world. Some of them are in the thousands of schools. I, I know you did a very large program in Peru, 75,000 schools. You did one in the Kyrgyz Republic, uh, focused uh, on, on really school infrastructure at national level. Can you tell us a little bit about those engagements and how you, how you even engage at that level with national government and then bring it down to city level and or province and city level? At the core of the process is very similar of what uh, Vivian described. Let me mention Kyrgyz Republic, which is an interesting case. Kyrgyz has around uh, 3,000 schools that were built decades ago in the Soviet period. And also they have, of course, a very high seismic risk in the north around Bishkek, the capital, and also in Ferjana Valley at the south. So the government was aware of the problem and they formulated actually six years ago a safe, a safe school program, which looked um, nice by the time. But the problem that's after three years, the program, the implementation of the program had not initiated because of budget allocation, because of lack of, of information reliable information because of lack of prioritization of investments, what to do first, and also because of the low capacity at national level, the program was on hold. So with support of the GPSS through a small World Bank lending operation, just around 20, 20 
US million in a two-year period the government was able to first to establish a risk-informed framework to select and prioritize retrofitting investment in schools at highest risk, similar to what Vivian said. Second, updating the seismic code provisions to enable <clears throat> the design of efficient engineering retrofitting solutions. Third, increasing the capacity of engineers at the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Public Works to engage in the implementation of the program. Then they were able to integrate solutions to improve not just the safety of the school, not just the retrofitting, but also toilets, to improve toilets, which are the condition was very poor, and also the energy efficiency of those buildings. And now they were able to reformulate the old plan. And as Vivian said, now at national level, they presented this to the department, this long-term plan, and with a rational and evidence-based argument, they were able to convince the parliament to move forward this long-term plan. So the logic behind these projects is the same. It's evidence-based, it's process that it's logically implement and follow a very, a very logic and very uh, straightforward process to produce these uh, investment plans. Vivian, you've been hands-on implementing this program in, in Cali. Do you have any core lesson or advice to give to other city resilience officer or mayor even who are contemplating this kind of program? I think that the key advice is don't despair because it's very easy to be desperate when you're when you're in front of this huge uh, problem remember that there is a step by step mechanism that you can utilize to solve the problem you know and and you have the support precisely of organizations like the world bank and and the resilient cities network to assist you but i think that one of the key things that i learned is you know, before we presented this, I, I had to present three times to the mayor what we were planning to do before he said, okay, let's do it. Uh, and, and this is someone that was already interested in education. But the reason was that I had failed two times on the third time I succeeded was because I was using the wrong language. You know, so sometimes you go and you talk to your political leaders in technical terms, and you talk to them about, you know, resilience. And I will never forget this, that my mayor used to say, you know, I can't even pronounce that word. In Spanish, it's really tricky, resiliencia. And he would say, I can't even pronounce that word. So every time you talk to me about that, and I was like, oh my God. And then I realized, you know, and he also made a comment and he said, why do you keep thinking that there will be an earthquake and that all schools will fall down? And because I was making the argument for safety. And then I realized, but this is a mayor that believes in education and believes in the quality of education. So I had to switch my argument and I started talking to him not about 
safer schools, or I also mentioned it, but I started talking about effective learning environments. Now, obviously, if you are right now in a country near Syria or, or Turkey and you talk about earthquakes, I'm pretty sure it will resonate, you know? So it's it, this depends on the political leader and the context that you're in. But in my context, it didn't resonate until I started talking about effective learning environments. And at that moment, I didn't have to mention resilience. I didn't talk about seismic risk. I talked about that, about improving the school portfolio for effective learning. And it worked magically. And everybody was on board. So my point is, we need to learn to speak the language that our leaders are listening to uh, or are open to, depending on the context that we're in. So the technical information is super important because it will support your argument among all the technical people that need to listen to that, you know, like the planning department, the treasury department, all those individuals. And you, I still retrofitted buildings. I still made schools safer, but that wasn't my pitch. I talked or I discussed the language the way my mayor needed to hear it or my leaders needed to hear it. So the same thing applied. When the mayor was talking to the public and when the mayor was convincing Kali about this, he talked about efficient learning, you know, schools and school. And he talked about sports and culture and he used a different argument. You know, he didn't tell the population the same things that we were using to convince him, but it was effective and it resonated with parents that wanted their children in schools that had culture and sports and, and green areas and that were new. And so I think that this is very important. And it's actually one of the things that is mentioned in the roadmap. Know your audience and know who you're talking to when you're doing your pitch. Fernando, you've been 10 years working on this program. What are your main lessons, your main insights? My advice for city administration would be on top of what Vivian already said. I would add uh, that uh, to be aware that the, the agenda for safer and resilient schools is a medium-term, long-term agenda if the solution doesn't happen overnight. Also, the need of considering school facilities as, as lifeline infrastructure. On top of the adverse impacts on learning outcomes, the downtime of school infrastructure exacerbates the challenges that cities have for the resilient recovery in the aftermath of, of a disaster. Also, it's a a fact that without the actual engagement from governments, stakeholders, and community, nothing can be done. You need this, this engagement, as Vivian explained. You need to, to, to adjust your narrative to get this, this engagement in place. Otherwise, nothing happens. Bringing innovation is also a key factor for the affordable solutions. And the last one, the last advice that I always mention to ministries of, of education is that the global knowledge and experience show that we, human beings, have the capacity and the knowledge to reduce substantially the probability of school children deaths due to the poor performance of school infrastructure. What actually is missing is the willingness to do it. On this um, great message, Fernando, Vivian, thank you very much. Thank you to our audience. Uh, you can find detailed information on the global program on Safer School at www.gpss.worldbank.org. GPSS is not the only group uh, working on this. In fact, on the GPSS platform, you, you will have a lot of information about other groups 
NGO networks, engineering networks that are supporting uh, Safer School. I think there's also a very interesting article on uh, Vivian's program, Mi Comunidad, Mi Escuela. It was great talking to you today about Safer School in cities and around the world. See you at the next podcast. Thank you very much.